0: But speaking of hope, hope is what Christmas is about. Hope is about Christmas and Christmas is about Christ. Christmas is about the coming of Christ. In today's passage, we're going to see how we can apply a teaching that was difficult to understand, take it, apply it to how we relate to people in and outside of the church, and how we can communicate the hope of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in all of our relationships. I've entitled this morning's message, The Supremacy of Christ in the Workplace. The Supremacy of Christ in the Workplace. And we are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 4. Uh, By way of overview and review, let me just uh, walk through the last three weeks or so. About three weeks ago, we started in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, where Paul exhorted every believer to set our minds on Christ. We are to set our minds on the things above and to put on the mind of Christ. Then uh, the week after that, we looked at chapter three, verses five to 11, where Paul commanded believers to put off our old nature. In other words, to battle sin. And then last week, we looked at in verses 12 to 17, the command, so if we're to put off the old nature, we are to put on our new nature, we are to put on the character of Christ, so you can see the flow of thought, set your mind on, the, on Christ, meaning put on the mind of Christ, put off your old nature, battle sin, and put on the character of Christ. And, and then in chapter 3, verse 18 to 4, to chapter 4, verse 1, you see this applied to three sets of relationships. In the New Testament church, these three relationships were contained within the household because workers and managers belonged within the household. Now, that has changed today, but the first relationship in in chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, it's a relationship between husband and wife. In chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, it's a relationship between parent and child. And then in chapter 3, verse 22 to 41, it is the relationship between worker and manager. Now, due to time limitations, and because we wanna really focus, I am not going to preach on verses 18 to 21. We often have sermons, messages, seminars that you can read about or attend on marriage. Uh, We've also heard many times every Father's Day, Mother's Day about parenting and we talk about marriage and parenting in the young married and and in the uh, married community groups and small groups. So, I think that topic is important. and. Pastor Terrence may, on Father's Day and Mother's Day, come back and cover these two passages. So we'll have other opportunities. But I think what we need to deal with is in chapter 3, verse 22, the ESV softens the blow and says, bondservants. servants. But the real Greek word is doulos, which is slave. And the word master is master, like a slave master. And so I think we need to explain today especially in our day, why the Apostle Paul would command slaves to obey their slave masters. And in light of that, understanding the New Testament context, how for us today, how that would translate to the relationship between employees and employers. Okay, so with that, that's what we're going to focus our time on. Take God's word, meet me now. With your hearts and your eyes, Colossians, the third chapter, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read the passage into your hearing, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Colossians chapter chapter 3, verse 22, reads this. Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Really? By obeying my master as a slave, I'm serving Christ? That doesn't sit too well in the pages of US history well, read on chapter chapter 3 verse 25 for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done there is no partiality chapter 4 verse 1 masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven now as I mentioned The Greek word bondservant should be translated as slaves. That is what it means. That's what the word means. So the first thing we want to do today is explain the New Testament context of slavery. When you think of slavery, you probably think of oppression and abuse. You probably think of slavery from the pages of U.S. history. American slavery was defined by the slave trade, oppression, racism. And there was a need for abolition. And if possible, Apostle Paul would have acted in the way of William Wilberforce, but Paul found himself in a different world of slavery. The institution of slavery was built into the heart of the Roman economy. One scholar put it this way, for Paul to get up in his day and to say, okay. All you Christians, free all your slaves. It would be a keen or like someone getting up today and say, everyone, get rid of your cars, of your automobile, okay? Because 85 to 90% of the people living in Rome were slaves. Let me repeat that. 85 to 90% of the people living in Rome were slaves. By law, slaves were what Aristotle referred to as quote-unquote human tools. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound just. But it's important to note that in the first century, slaves had many rights. During the New Testament times, we don't want to take away from the reality that there were very evil masters. And there were masters who oppressed Slaves and abused their servants. But for the most part, slaves were part of the regular workforce. Some slaves were equivalent to that of maids, child care workers, private tutors. They would be well-dressed, well-fed, and well-cared for. But there were also slaves, a number or the majority of slaves, who were educated. Education paid for by their masters. There were slaves who managed households. They managed the finances of the household. They even ran their master's businesses. Slaves were doctors, nurses that would work for a good household and manager. Many of us today in this room, unless you were born into the elite, we would be bond servants. We would be part of the workforce. We would be be slaves. Some slaves were more educated than their masters. Some people wanted to be slaves for financial security. If you found a rich man who happened to be kind, you would want to work for him. You would want the benefits of the health care and the annuity and the perks and the housing that this family would provide for you. Slaves were permitted to save up the money they earned so that they could purchase their own freedom. And so the range of slavery was wide. There was everything from harsh oppression and abuse, which is evil, to slaves working as CEOs and business managers for their wealthy masters. Paul knew that there was something fundamentally wrong with seeing another human being made in the image of God as your property. No man should be owned legally by another man. But he also knew that he could not eliminate the institution of slavery. 85 to 90% of the Roman economy was driven by slavery. But what he does instead is not try to change the political system. For those who have ears to hear, let yourself hear. He does not try to change a secular system or institution systemically he knew that the world has fallen in fact where was Paul writing from prison how could a man in prison envision himself changing the systems of this world instead he took pen to paper and penned the power of the gospel he presented a more powerful reality, a counter-cultural economy within the four walls of the church. You see, the power of the gospel, Paul believed, would transform the relationship between Christian masters and slaves. Paul's aim, then, is not to change the mindset or system of the secular world. He trusted the Holy Spirit to change the heart of people so that they would set their minds on the thing of, things of Christ, put off their sinful nature, treat one another by putting on the character of Christ. And in that way, Christian masters and Christian slaves would treat each other, not as master and slave, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. That was Paul's aim. If you understand the heart of Paul and how he addressed the New Testament institution of slavery, you will understand the heart of his theology. The gospel mission is the priority. Reconciliation is the aim between brothers and sisters. You will also understand why he says in the church, there's neither slave nor free. He's not saying outside of the four walls. You see, if you are a boss outside and you go to the same church as your employee or the other way around, when you come into these four walls, it could be reversed where the employee is a deacon or leader see when you come into the four walls of the church it doesn't negate the fact that there's still a need for structure right so in your workplace there's managers and supervisors and then there's workers but when you but you treat each other properly justly within that system but when you come into the church all those all those relationships are, there's neither slave nor free within the church. You see, there's no, there's no longer that social hierarchy or economic hierarchy. Again, Paul does not try to change the system that he cannot reverse. Instead, he aims for the heart and changes relationships. You understand that? You understand the heart of the gospel. Now, just to give Paul some credit... Paul believed in the abolition of slavery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 to 24, let me read this into your hearing. It says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to this opportunity. In other words, if there's a way that you can gain your freedom, then you ought to do it. But Paul knew that there was a way where you could possibly win the heart of your master, and that is by putting on the mindset of Christ, putting off the old nature, putting on the character of Christ, and with the witness of your testimony, maybe you lead your unbelieving master to become a Christian, and then they might treat you well, and even free you, grant you your freedom, because the theology transforms them. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 22 to 23, he gives the reason, the grounds for why they must see themselves as bondservants of Christ. He says, for he, has, he, who has called, <clears throat> he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. The Lord sees you as free. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. Meaning, even if you're a master or even if you're a free citizen, you still have a heavenly master that you need to an answer to. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men, meaning recognize that you're truly a servant of Christ. You see the exhortations of Colossians 3 come alive, that when you work for the Lord, you are setting your mind on Christ and the things above, even if your earthly condition says otherwise. And then in in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 7, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain Not alone, but now with God. God is with you. But if you can gain your freedom as a slave, you ought to do it. Now, with that context, that's all introduction. I have another 45 minutes. I'm just playing with you. I'm just playing with you. It's Christmas, right? So let's go to point number one. Point number one, Colossians 3, verses 22 to 25, is the one who works for the Lord. Verse 22 says this. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. That's what we read earlier. Notice how Paul refers to the masters on earth. Your earthly masters. Because there is a heavenly master for the believer of, in Jesus Christ. He's very clear. These are your earthly masters. He refers to these bondservants, slaves, obey in everything. To obey simply means to follow the guidelines. To follow the rules work honestly don't steal work hard don't cut corners right today it says obey in everything that means the good and bad so you got to take that literally obey in everything now i want to be clear the bible is not saying to subject yourself to be mistreated illegally in today's world you got to do some cultural translation Today we have employment laws. Well, praise be to God. We have HR, human resources, human resource departments, right? Where you have to be treated equally. Sometimes too much. It becomes a political agenda, okay? But take it with a cultural grain of salt. Apply this to today's world. This is not saying do everything sinfully or illegally that your boss tells you to do. This does not say that to be treated with oppression. This does say to do what you agree to do, right, as an employee, and to obey in everything. But notice the aim. It says not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. Why? Because you could simply say, okay, when my boss is looking I'm going to work really hard because he'll give me favor and I might get a raise. Now, that might be some common sense wisdom, but what, what Paul is saying is work with integrity, right? He says not as by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. That's integrity. Fearing the Lord. Not because you're afraid of your boss, but because you fear the Lord because that's your new master, right? As a new creature of Christ, when I applied to my first a real job right? at the age of 16 uh, at an ice cream shop um, the lady who interviewed me which was the owner's wife she asked the question how would you define integrity and I knew she was gonna ask that because my friend who had told me to apply told me she's gonna ask you this and you have to have an answer okay so I looked in the dictionary because I had no integrity I didn't know what integrity is I knew what an Acura integra was And I wanted an integra. I didn't know what integrity was. I I never used that word, right? We don't trash talk with integrity on the basketball court. So I looked at a dictionary. And then I said, okay, I got to make this my own. So I told her, I said, what you do when nobody else is looking. And I got the job, okay? I got the job. Well, think about that. As a Christian, what you do when nobody else is looking, the Lord is looking all the time. Right, So that's what's saying, with integrity of heart, with sincerity, honesty, because you fear not man, but you fear the Lord. In fact, the higher you go in your workplace, the more integrity you need to have. Because when you're a manager, or middle management, or upper management, you begin to have trust given to you. You have more freedom, per se. And as such, you need to steward your workplace with integrity. And so this is for this is for the power of our Christian witness, right? Then you look at the next verse, verse 23. It says, whatever you do, work heartily. I, I love that. You know, I love that Paul, he doesn't say work hard. He says work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. And the reason why I love work heartily is because it means to work with all your hearts. To put your heart into your work to really work because you want to be there and you're grateful and you're thankful <clears throat> and you're working with as much joy as reasonably as possible right and, and and not just to please your boss but because you love the Lord because a lazy worker or worker with a horrible attitude is a horrible testimony to the gospel <clears throat> but in contrast 1st Timothy 6 1 to 2 and also Titus chapter 2 tell us that Paul wanted workers to work hard because it was it was, it was was to be a testimony, a testament of the power of the gospel. Actually, Paul believed in the power of Christian character. He believed in the power of put on the character of Christ. <clears throat> so in 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, he says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, and that's even if you're if your master was dishonorable. But there's a so that, there's a purpose, right? There's a reason, there's a purpose clause, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's what it is. It's not because your boss deserves the honor, per se. It is because Christ, your true boss, deserves the honor, and the name of the Lord and the teaching of the gospel would be reviled if you acted dishonestly or sinfully. Verse two, those who have believing masters, so if you work for a Christian boss, then even more so, don't be disrespectful, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. You see the priority? Paul's saying, I understand how hierarchy works. I understand that there needs to be corporate structure. But at the same time, you can have that structure. But recognize that there's a higher relationship than boss and worker, which is brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers, and beloved. You see, Paul believed in the power of a countercultural economy within the church. Titus chapter two, verses nine to ten, Paul repeats. He says, bond servants are to be submissive. To their own masters, again, in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering. So here's in detail, right? Don't steal, but showing all good faith so that, what's the purpose, Paul? In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. In other words, in your workplace, show your orthodoxy through your orthopraxy, right? Through your practice of doctrine, it speaks louder than your speech. You can say you're a Christian. How do you work? How do you act? How do you carry yourself? Right? What is your witness like? That's Paul's heart. And you go back into our passage, Colossians chapter 3, verses 24 to 25. He reinforces this teaching. By the way, this is the same teaching repeated in the book of Ephesians. You're going to see a lot of parallel between Colossians and Ephesians. But in verses 24 and 25, it says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the the inheritance. This is not just any inheritance. The inheritance as your reward. And then it says very strongly, You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid. For the wrong he has done, there is no partiality. First, let's explain this. We work knowing that from Christ we will receive the inheritance This is talking about your eternal reward in Christ. This is talking about when you get to heaven, when you enter the presence of God, every sacrifice that you made where you're like, you know what, I was honest, and I got passed over for my promotion by the person who was dishonest. When you get to heaven, I don't know how to explain it to you. It's not like you're getting more righteousness points, but you're going to have a sense of fulfillment where everything's going to make sense, where the Lord is going to say, I saw that i was watching and you know what i was pleased and here's your blessing whatever that might be right even for for the lord to say to us good and faithful servant well done good and faithful servant that's going to bring so much fulfillment that it's going to make up for every sacrifice that you made in the name of christ knowing that from the lord you will receive the inheritance your salvation with christ as your reward and it says you are serving the lord I mean, so many times, even as a pastor, I need to be reminded, Hanley, you're serving the Lord. You know, it's funny, right? You're serving the Lord. You know, a lot of times I'll have kind of a a real annoying attitude, whether it's at home or something, because I fear that I won't have enough time to lead all the meetings, do counseling, and write all my sermons. In fact, the sermon is where I get the most stress. But in the last three months, the Lord has shown me, Hanley, the sermon's always going to be there. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how hard you write or how clear you are. If you have no voice You're not preaching. You know, I've had this since October 28th, right? Ever since I lost my voice at the wedding I haven't gotten better. My voice uh, Came back and it turned into a cough and where you only cough at night and for a month You have to sit up to sleep because of the yeah two TMI right the post nasal drip right and so even today I was praying. And even yesterday, I was trying to stay home. I was wearing a scarf, you know, just to make sure that I can carry through two services today. Right, so God's made it clear, Henley, you work for the Lord, literally. And so instead of preparing sermons, you need to be praying and acting like John the Baptist, drinking more honey, okay? And because guess what, honey? You ain't preaching. And so I learned that it doesn't matter, right? And for some of you working on the outside, it's the same thing. Okay, the Lord is going to work in you and through you, but we need to recognize who we're serving. We're not serving man. We're not serving the people that we are serving. In reality, we're serving the Lord, and the Lord can take away our ability to work through sickness and injury. The Lord can cause us to have a job or not have a job. And so sometimes he puts us to the test, and he says, in your workplace, will you do what is hard? Will you stand up? It doesn't mean you go up and start preaching and get fired. That would be foolish. But will you do the little things? Even if your boss tells you, no, do what is dishonest. So you're like, nope, this is my integrity. And if you lose your job, do you trust that the Lord will provide? That the Lord will provide for you because his kingdom is the real economy for his people. That's the economy we work for. We all work for Christ. That's very clear. You are serving the Lord Christ. Set your mind on the thing of Christ, things of Christ. Put off the old nature, put on the character of Christ and apply it to all your relationships, especially the workplace. For those of you who are retired, you know, when you hire people to come and fix your home or you know, treat them kindly How can you love on the people and be a good witness to those who come and serve you? For those of you who have adult children, maybe they're really stressed out in the workplace, and you've worked already, you're retired, how can you sit with them and mentor them and point them back to the Lord? That's the key. Over and over again, you see repeated, for the Lord, to the Lord. We're working for the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer, this includes the worker, but obviously it's the master as well, but the wrongdoer, meaning the dishonest worker, this is the unrepentant, the unbeliever, will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There's no partiality, meaning God will look at sin and sin. He will judge sin and sin. And so the New Testament does prescribe, however, future wrath and judgment for evil people who abuse human beings. It's not verbatim. So I'm not putting it on the screen. But if you want to look, Revelation chapter 18, verse 13. Revelation 18, verse 13. When you interpret that rightly, it is clearly implying to you that God will judge slave traders and slave owners for their oppression of human lives. Revelation 18 13 that the Lord will judge slave traders and slave owners for their oppression of human lives. So the summary of our, first, of our first point is all who work must work to honor and witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, there's one simple command for managers or for masters. And so point number two is the one who manages for the Lord. Now I want you to understand this, and I want you to understand the context a little bit. I already gave the caveat, right? The clarification that there are evil masters who enslave people and oppress people. There was a period in in New Testament history leading up to those times where most slaves became slaves through war. But by the time Paul was writing, if 85 to 90% of the Roman economy was made up of 85 to 90% of the citizens of Rome or the, were slaves, the population, then what does that say about the economy? The masters actually need good bond servants and workers. I, I think that more or less you would have masters, some evil, right, but some just masters, trying to hold on for dear life as 85 to 90% of the union is against you. So more of the verses in all of these passages are aimed at the slave. It was more common for a slave to steal, a slave to be dishonest. The master can only do so much. But God tells the masters, and he doesn't have to say too much to the masters. He says, masters, play golf. No, I'm just kidding. Masters, treat, treat your bondservants Justly and fairly. And remember, look at the similarities, knowing that you have, knowing that you serve the Lord, right? Knowing that the Lord will reward you. Same thing, but it's the masters, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Real simple. Hey, masters, you better treat people with dignity and honor because God is going to get you, because He's your real master. Just remember who your creator is, right? Real simple. But justly and fairly, it means to treat people with dignity and appropriate honor, it talks about justice and fairness. Now, here's the funny thing. If you treated someone justly and fairly, you would not treat them as a slave. You would not treat them as property. You would treat them as, in the context of Paul, a employee Ye. someone who works for you and you provide for them they provide for you work and services and together you know that you need to treat each other well in order to, have, to do good business right? and that's where we draw our parallel Paul is actually saying treat people like employee act like an, a good employer that's what it means to, to treat people with, with justice and fairness and this is also why, what I mentioned earlier, Colossians 3.11, within the church, there's neither slave or free. Now, Paul's command for masters was countercultural for his day. Because at the end of the day, even if you had masters who were nice, they still saw their slaves as their property. That was just the culture back then. <clears throat> but the gospel brought this revolutionary idea that master and slave are equal when it comes to social status. <laughs> That's crazy. And Paul's saying, when you look at the church, within the church, master and slave, there's neither slave nor free, master and slave are equal in honor and social capital. And Paul wanted Christian masters to see themselves as fellow bondservants of the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Or did I mention it in the last service? I forget. But if if you're a boss and you come into the four walls and someone works for you, or the other way around, you know you're equal, right? That that's been eliminated within the church. The heart of Paul is reconciliation among brothers and sisters of Christ. So to sum up, Colossians one four, masters must treat their bondservants justly and fairly, because all earthly masters are servants of our Lord Jesus Christ and they will answer to the Lord. Both the worker and the manager are both bondservants of Christ if they are Christians. Now, I want to end with a story. Whenever I say that, you know, it's, it's, it's a Bible story. And so I want to tell you the story of Philemon. Philemon was, was a slave master in the city of Colossae. He was saved under Paul's ministry. So Paul is his spiritual daddy. I right, put it in those words, okay? Because that's how Paul's going to write. Paul was his spiritual father, okay, and he was a member of the Colossian church, but Philemon had a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now I'll give you that in a moment. Named Onesimus, Onesimus ran away to Rome. Now we don't know what Onesimus did, but we understand that Onesimus did something wrong. Most scholars assume that Onesimus must have stolen from his master, Philemon. But in his sovereign plan, while on the run, Onesimus met Paul in Rome and was converted to Christ. Now, Paul grew to love Onesimus, to love him as his own spiritual son. So now look at the picture. You have the Apostle Paul as the spiritual father. Onesimus and Philemon, slave and master, are now brothers in Christ. Both of them, Paul's their spiritual father. Both of them, they need to serve the Lord. Onesimus, his name means useful, profitable, and beneficial. <clears throat> now, Paul found Onesimus extremely helpful, and Paul was like, man, it would be great if I could keep this runaway slave as my fellow co-worker here. If only he's been so helpful to me. Again, Paul's in prison. But Paul knew that keeping this runaway slave without Philemon's blessing was wrong. <clears throat> Not only was it illegal, according to Roman law, to keep someone else's uh, property as yours, a runaway slave, but it was it would be defrauding to Philemon as a brother in Christ. So, Paul decides to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Only now, Onesimus returns with a new status as a fellow brother in Christ, and... Paul urges Philemon, please forgive Onesimus for his sins and welcome him back as a brother in Christ. Paul's priority is not immediately free him. Paul's priority is reconciliation. So by returning Philemon to Onesimus, Onesimus is taking responsibility for his sin. Note Paul's priority of reconciliation as brother and sisters in Christ rather than immediate freedom because why? Paul knows that true freedom comes through reconciliation. True freedom comes through reconciliation spiritually, and reconciliation at a human level can lead to human freedom. <clears throat> now, as I read this to you, I want you to take note that Paul in his letter to Philemon is very Asian in his communication. In fact, Philemon, I've, I've told the younger pastors, Philemon helps me to work in a Chinese church. I want you to see how he writes. You know, you know, it's it's real different in Western communication. In a Western communication framework, direct request, direct teaching, linear thought. Free him because you're a believer. You ought to. I'm your spiritual father talking to you now, Philemon. Free him. You owe me your life. Paul, uh, you know, you ought to. I'm not going to ask you to but I'm gonna write it in such a way where you're cornered. And you ought to do the right thing, but you don't have to if you really don't want to. But you know like I brought all those oranges to your house every single, every single time? Now I'm sending my, my spiritual son to you. Now it's not oranges, I need you to return the favor. It's never about the oranges. Eastern relationships are built on reciprocation. So it's, you bring the oranges, ah! They brought oranges. I need to bring oranges. And it continues the relationship until one day you really need help. Hey, you know what? My son needs a job. Okay? Paul? Asian. No, not really, okay, but Asian minor. Okay, here, let's read it. Let's read it. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So I'm not going to command you. I, Paul, look at how he puts his his Asian authority, okay? Age, right? Age. Not I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child. (laughs) This is my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 11 formerly he was useless to you but now he is indeed useful to you and to me i'm sending him back to you sending my very heart i would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel i love how he writes it he's serving me on your behalf If you're Philemon, how do you answer your senior pastor like that, right? Or your, your spiritual father, the, the great Apostle Paul? I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I'm going to read verse 13 again. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, priority of the mission. Verse 14, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. In other words, I'm not forcing your hand, I want you to put on the mind of Christ. I want you to put off your old nature. I want you to put on the character of Christ. I want you to do what Christ would have you do on your own accord, not because I'm commanding you. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he's parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Notice that Paul knows that he can't reverse the social structure of slavery. He tries to change the relationship that the gospel transforms between believers. He's not, he's more than a bondservant, he's a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, here's where he puts on the Asian guilt, okay? If you, I'm not talking to you as an apostle talking to a servant, I'm talking to you as a ministry partner. Right? Paul's like, that's how the world thinks, social hierarchy. I'm talking to you, Philemon, as a ministry partner. right? He says, he says, consider me your partner. Receive him as you would receive me, substitutionary atonement. When you see him, it's as if it's me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Okay, Think about that. If he stole from you, I will pay it back. Do you think Philemon, a rich man, would ever take anything from Paul? Paul's just saying it. Paul's smart, right? He's like, hey, let me in prison pay you back. Oh, jeez. What's Philemon going to do? You know how in Asian culture, right? <clears throat> if I send you my son you, and you respect me, you treat my son well. Take care of my son, right? The same way I'll take care of your son, right? Charge that to my account. Verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Ooh, there's the authority. There's flexing, right? I'm writing this myself. I'm not telling my secretary to write this. I am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your, of your owing me even on your own self, but you just said it, right? He's like, he's like need, I don't need to remind you, Philemon, of how much you owe me spiritually, but he just said it. You know how our parents do that to us? <laughs> Verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I know you'll do what's right. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say, which is what? Not only send him back, send him back to Paul and grant, Phile- grant Onesimus his freedom. You see, Paul's Theology, please receive him back if, as if he's me. Family language and substitutionary atonement being communicated. Please send him back to me as a ministry helper. The priority of the gospel mission. And then number three, implying freedom from slavery. So rather than trying to work with the Roman economy and Roman political system, he's working within the church saying this is how relationships ought to be. If you understand Philemon, you understand the heart of Paul's theology, period, in all of his letters. right? Paul always writes this way. It's always priority of Christ, priority of the gospel, reconciled relationships between Jews and Gentiles or, or, or brothers and sisters in conflict, and think like Christ. He wants Philemon to think like Christ. He wants Onesimus to think like Christ. Paul's appeal to him, put on the mind of Christ. That's essentially what he's saying. And so application for you and me is that in all of our relationships, put on the mind of Christ. Reconciliation is an aim. Treat each other as brothers in Christ, not according to how the world would define us as employee and employers or slave and master. And that implies if you treat someone like Christ, it's better than freedom. You see what Paul didn't want to risk is Paul could have said, Philemon, do what is right. I command you, give him to me. If Philemon could have been like, okay, Paul, fine, I'll give him to you. Why don't you keep him? Don't even keep him. You know, Paul would have said that's failure because Paul's goal was reconciliation. That's why he's like, go back to Philemon. If the reconciliation didn't happen, Paul would have saw that as a failure. You see how Paul's thinking is completely inundated by the gospel. And so historians tell us this interesting fact that Ignatius of Antioch referred to a man named Onesimus who served as the bishop of Ephesus around 81.10. Now, Ephesus and Colossae are not far apart. Now, we are not sure if this is the same Onesimus because Onesimus was a common name. But I would like to believe that we see the fruits of a former slave of Philemon now truly a slave of Christ, serving in ministry. And that could be, it could be this same Onesimus who became the bishop of Ephesus around AD 110. The big idea for us today is that Christian employees and employers must treat one another with Christ like honor because both are bondservants of Christ. Christian employees and employers must treat one another with Christ-like honor because both are bondservants of Christ. Allow today's message to apply to us, even outside of the workplace, in all our relationships. May Christ be supreme. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, hard text to culturally swallow. Help us, Lord, to apply the New Testament teaching of how we are to prioritize the gospel, how we are to put on the mind of Christ. Help us, Lord, to focus on the reconciliation of relationships and to be a good witness. Lord, I want to pray, especially for those in here who are in a very difficult situation in their workplace. I want to pray for those who work under harsh conditions or political conditions in their workplace or under a boss who's not just or honest who is not favorable towards them. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would protect my brother or sister and you would allow them to work wisely and to to demonstrate Christ-likeness and provide for them, Lord. I want to pray for those who manage and those who lead and supervise or own their own businesses, that you would help them to be a great witness to those who work under their care, whether those are Christians or non-Christians. And for any manager who has a difficult employee. Lord, I pray that you would give him wisdom as to how to navigate those conversations, those relationships. Lord, ultimately we surrender to you as our Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.